0: Welcome to The Next Track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce The Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free. So we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. One of my favorite words is interregnum. It's like, I've always liked it. It has a great sound. It, has, it sounds to me like it's something you go to the doctor for. You go, oh, man, I got this interregnum on my bowel. And the guy says, we're going to leave it okay for a while. But in five years, he wants to have a look at it again. So interregnum literally means between reigns. And British people know about the interregnum, which is when, what was it, the mid-17th century? Is that when that was? Something like that, Yeah. I don't, I, but anyway, before there was the
1: restoration no, and after the regency, or I think the regency it. was during the interregnum and then the restoration and whatever.
0: I took British history in in college because I was fast because it was in English, <laughs> it was easy to understand, <laughs> and it was fun to look. But anyway, um, this was a period in British history in the mid 17th century when there was no monarchy, so the period is called the interregnum between reigns because the monarchy came back, as we all know. I, I always look for a reason to use the word interregnum, and I think I found a good one. And it has to do with the way we listen to music. Up until the mid-90s, everybody, including the record companies and consumers and, and musicians and artists and composers, was perfectly happy with the way music was recorded and distributed and purchased. Everybody was having a great time. Everybody was making money. Everybody was making their music. The, the record companies would provide the product. They'd... Uh, They'd had the distribution channels to make it available through radio stations, through record stores and things like that. And then things things came to a perfect storm in the mid 90s. I remember one of the interns at the radio station I worked at came to me with his laptop and said, look, I ripped all my CDs and put all the music on my computer. And I said, well, what'd you go and do that for? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Why don't you just carry CDs around like I do? I mean, how much time do you, do you have during the day to listen to music? Get back to work in turn. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is what the kids were doing. It, there was no official um, player for these things. You could find third parties writing these really, really bad audio players on Windows, on the Mac. Later, there were several. But early on, you couldn't find one for the Mac. You couldn't. When I first heard what an MP3 was, I said, well, that just sounds perfect for sending information back and forth. But why would I listen to an MP3? That doesn't make any sense. I've got a bag full of CDs. Or cassette tapes. Uh, cassette tapes,
1: right. To play in the car. Right.
0: Yeah. But as we all know, what really ha- what eventually happened was we all started ripping stuff. And the music industry lost control of its product. They no longer had a handle on the distribution channels because now i could buy a cd and i could put my i could rip it put the music up on napster and thousands of people could get free music and the record companies and the artists and composers and whoever else wouldn't make any money from it that's when the interregnum began technology supplanted the control of music and I, we were just talking earlier i just casually mentioned that the music industry did not plan on having its product stolen and managed by the tech industry. But they had no choice. There was a groundswell, and Steve Jobs and a whole bunch of other cool little things came together to help this happen. But Steve Jobs convinced the record companies, I can make back some of the money that you've been losing through this ripping if you let us sell it through our channel. And the rest is history. So you've got this interregnum where the record companies aren't in control of their own product. But now they're starting to regain control. They're starting to understand how digital media work. Well, they're not starting to understand. They they understood then, they just weren't in, in any kind of position to uh to do anything about it. But now that bandwidths are are are, are wider, We can get information faster. Internet speeds are faster. Now we can have streaming. And the record companies are kind of like not totally in charge, but working better, I think, with tech to regain control of their product. But I think it's very interesting that that 15, 20 year period in the late the the, the end of the 20th century, the record companies were in a complete panic. And it was it was a free for all.
1: What could we call this interregnum?
0: Well, I call it the crutch interregnum because this period of time kind of helped us lob along until a more stable period when we had, now we have streaming and now we have this, another wonderful paradise where we can listen to whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. Whereas we couldn't really do that as easily 40 years ago.
1: Now, if I title this episode The Crutch Interregnum, people are going to think it has something to do with Game of Thrones or something. So I hope they'll read the summary of the episode before they decide not to listen to it. Uh, I think what's really interesting is we have two parallel things going on. We We have the improvement of technology in music, so the arrival of the compact disc. And at the same time, we have the amazingly quick spread of portable music listening, starting with the Walkman. And as the Walkman progressed, and then those portable CD players, but people really didn't like those as much, the portable CD players, because they could skip. And I remember they said they would have a buffer of 20 seconds or whatever, but they still skipped. And then we get to 2001 and the iPod, and that's when technology takes total control, that... Not only do we have a viable portable digital music player, and it's not the first, there were other MP3 players. You could put six songs on them and you'd have to, you know, copy them one at a time, and it was really slow. But all of a sudden, we had a device that could hold, what was it, a thousand songs in your pocket? That was the slogan. And the People think that the rise of the iPod was meteoric, but it wasn't. The first couple of years, it wasn't. It wasn't until there was an iTunes for Windows because the the Mac market share was so low. And it really took off when the iTunes Music Store was introduced. And that the combination of those two, the, the iPod and the iTunes Music Store, meant that there was this channel. And I remember Steve Jobs doing these demos. And look, I go to the store and I click and then there it is. It's on my iPod. And I think We went through a period of, you know, ripping CDs, which most people didn't bother to do. Napster, which was complicated if you didn't know how to do. It It was a really geeky thing. To all of a sudden making this so simple that why would you not get your music that way? Instead of... Why would you want to add to those stacks of CDs and those really narrow CD towers that you had when you were running out of room, when you could just put it on your iPod without having to rip it, without having to do anything, and it was cheap, a buck a song, 10 bucks an album, it was relatively affordable.
0: It was something that the record industry understood. <laughs> that I think they were able to understand, I don't, know, I don't know why we talk about them as this monolithic thing, but there really are a very few decision makers, Right. I mean, when it comes to this kind of thing, and um, it, seem, it did seem easier, but I, I, I just, there was a distrust of the tech, because for years, the record companies have been battling home taping, you know, and, right. and, and so they're naturally nervous about anything, and you know, it's funny, when I think about Steve Jobs rescuing um, the music industry, there's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life, do you know the movie? And uh, it's right after the stock market crash. And Potter is talking to, uh, to George Bailey. And he says, now, I've, I'm going to be helping out the bank. And we're going to open reopen in two weeks. And the the shot of the banker is a guy holding an account book and wiping his brow with a handkerchief, saying, thank <laughs> goodness. I don't know we could have gotten. That's how I think the record companies felt. When Steve Jobs proposed this and said, Look, I can save you some of your money. I can help you gain control of some of it. But, you know, the future, you're going to have to, you're going to lose whatever you had. It's going to be a new era. And I don't think, I think they were ready to gamble that, even though they didn't understand what it was. But I think that they could see the dollar signs in what he, what he proposed to them.
1: Remember that around that time, the music industry, that big monolithic music industry had a pretty negative goodwill among the public. They introduced these CDs with copy protection, which were really problematic. They were harassing people for making tapes of recordings. And yes, I recorded whole albums from people, but not that much. It was, you know, it, it was kind of a thing you did. But all the surveys showed that the more people who made tapes of albums actually bought more music. And the record industry couldn't understand that these were their influencers back in the day. And they just, they just looked at the ledger and counted the bottom line and saw that people were buying less music, but it wasn't because of taping. It was from other reasons. So when Steve Jobs came, you know, the white knight and all that, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew, well, he hoped that he was opening a breach in the walls of multiple things of personal uh, portable technology, of getting into the music business. Remember famously, Apple computer had made a deal with Apple records, the Beatles record company that they wouldn't be involved in the music business. And they had to settle with Apple music, which is now Apple's music streaming service. But they had to settle with that. They had to settle with Apple records to be able to use it for trademark reasons, for the simple name, the simple reason, the name Apple was registered for certain trademark classes. And, The music industry was pretty much reviled at the time because they had released CDs at twice the price of LPs, which didn't cost twice the price to make. And they were getting people to buy new copies of things they'd had on LP. And people were feeling ripped off, and new CDs were coming out. And the refrain was, Oh, there's only two good songs on that record, but I have to buy the CD. Because CD singles never worked, they were never popular. And so people weren't buying singles anymore. They couldn't buy individual songs. And that's another reason the iTunes Music Store succeeded. I want to point something out. The iTunes Music Store opened in April 2003. And the tagline was, you know, 10 bucks an album, a buck a single, et cetera. I just looked on the current iTunes Store. They removed the music from the name. And one of the most popular new recordings is Dawn FM by The Weeknd. Guy (laughs) needs to buy a vowel, doesn't he? Okay. Now, if I look at $10 in 2003, and the value now, that's $15 today. So inflation in 19 years has gone up 50%. But The Weeknd's album is still nine ninety nine. This is an exception, I think, because it's apparently a very big seller. Other new records, well, whoa, whoa, well, this is surprising. Here's one by DS Forever. It's only $7.99. Have have album prices gone down? I was expecting to see twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine, something like that.
0: I wasn't aware of that. You know, to be honest, I haven't bought files from there in a while.
1: Out of the top ten records, one of them is a double album at fourteen ninety nine. One of them is Taylor Swift at fourteen ninety nine. All the rest are less than ten dollars. They're seven ninety nine, nine ninety nine, even four ninety nine. But that's Purple Rain soundtrack, so that's the catalog recording. As I look down the list, this is the most popular records in the iTunes store. So the most popular includes, interestingly, a lot of old things, like the Blues Brothers' original soundtrack, 4 dollars They must have a soundtrack promotion going on. But the most popular ones are still less than $10. There are a handful that are more, and again, a number of double albums. The, the new West Side Story soundtrack, $11.99. That's a good example of a premium record. The new Adele album is 10.99. So the prices haven't even gone up that much. But in part, this is a new price pressure to compensate streaming. If people are likely to pay for streaming and not buy records because the records were getting more expensive, now if the records or the albums get cheaper, maybe more people will buy the album. So they're loss leading the albums with a lower prices to try and get them to sell because no one's buying them.
0: I, I'm not sure what are they trying to do? Wrestle the, I mean, I just don't see how file, how, they, how long can they keep doing this? How long can files be a, a viable product? I mean, I'm all for it. I write stuff for, I, for music and iTunes and you know, the, my business depends on people having files. Um, yes, don't get rid of files anytime soon because Doug is
1: not ready to retire. <laughs> but on the other hand, <laughs> I'm not really right. well, I'm, if, I'm not worried about it. You're right. If everyone is streaming...
0: Well, I'm, the reason I'm not worried about it is because they still handle CDs. So it's like, yeah. they, you know, it's I'm not but too But if everyone's
1: about. streaming, then who is buying these files? Maybe people are buying them as gifts. Maybe people... Th- there are still people who don't pay for streaming and who don't listen to a lot of music, and maybe they buy a few albums. But I kind of wonder what the demographics of people buying downloads is anymore. It's an interesting idea because, so the music industry CDs and then the tech industry comes in and takes care of the sales. Then the tech industry makes the next step and streams. And that totally shakes up the economics of the music industry, which is why, in part, the large, a couple of the major record labels have big stakes in Spotify, and some have already sold some of their stakes. It's also why a lot of these record labels are buying up publishing rights for Dylan, Bowie, Springsteen, who else recently? Stevie Nicks. Yeah, Stevie Nicks, Shakira, which is interesting, because she's a younger artist. We were talking about this offline last week, there's a limited number of artists who can sell this, right? They're selling the publishing rights, which means that when a record is played on something that generates royalties, which is not U.S. radio, but radio abroad in many countries, streaming services or whatever, some of the money goes to the songwriter. Some of the money goes to the performer. And the publishing is the most stable bit of income in music. And that's why big artists always keep their own publishing rather than sign it away to the record labels, which is what the record labels have long yeah. wanted and have always wanted. And there aren't that many artists that have the critical mass of being songwriters and performers to to sell like this. A couple others are Fleetwood MacNeil, Young, John Lennon, etc. But there aren't going to be too many more who can do this in the future. What I find interesting is that they're banking on the kind of artist that's almost become classical music in the way in the way that Frank Sinatra's classical music. You, you will always recognize Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen's songs. You will always recognize David Bowie. And the money that they're getting is not just streaming. It's the money that they get for what's called sync rights in movies and TV shows and commercials. And they're hoping that the... The cultural weight of these well-known artists is going to carry them forward over the decades. It's
0: really interesting, too, because um, I hear ACDC music used in the most unusual places. Um, It's because the estate wants to get money from it. I mean, I think I I heard the song TNT, which is a really, you know, not a violent song. It's a silly violent song, but I think it was used for dishwashing liquid or something.
1: You know, and, no, I seriously. took a sip of tea just before you said that, and it's a good thing it didn't get, it didn't come out.
0: I mean, it's the sort of thing where, I bet younger people probably don't care, but I kind of have a, a, a thing for ACDC, and to hear it, well, I remember the outrage when Eric Clapton uh, sold, uh, did some music for, uh, he did After Midnight for Michelob back in the 80s, and people lost their minds. How dare you do that? And... Uh, but this is the way that the money is made. And you're right. I like how you refer to it as a classical music because that really is what it is. There's only so many artists that can pull this off. Think of all the artists that, that you don't know. <laughs> Think of the the, the the plethora of musicians who can't possibly ever reach the, the heights uh, that, you know, the people that you just mentioned are Fleetwood Mac, Bob Dylan. Did, who? Who's going to make money in this industry? Why even? Why become a musician? <laughs> reducing it to its reductive absurdo here. And
1: and remember that the only ones who can do this are the ones who are singer-songwriters. Right. So someone who wrote songs for a whole bunch of musicians, well, they could sell their publishing, but it's not got the same weight as say Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan who were actual singer-songwriters. Michael Lang died the other day. Michael Lang was one yes. of the Purdue was the, the guy behind Woodstock. And if he's the
0: curly haired guy in the movie, the curly right, haired
1: guy. Right. And yeah. if you go back to the Woodstock movie or album and look at all the artists there, how many of them are still relevant? Other than among old people like us, how many can you think of the, on the movie, the album, not for the whole festival, because there are a lot that didn't make the movie, the album. Grateful Dead, for example, didn't make the movie or the album. But how many of them are still relevant?
0: Well, with the exception of someone like Hendrix, who is historically relevant. Yeah. Um, right.
1: And, and I mean musically relevant. I don't mean performing today.
0: Crosby, Stills, and Nash, maybe. Uh, Jefferson Airplane. But not really.
1: Crosby, Stills, and
0: Nash probably could sell. Oh, they got legal problems, too. They have uh, they have issues. But um, there aren't you're right. There aren't that many. I mean, Country Joe and the Fish. Who the hell ever heard of them?
1: Yeah, but that's because we know who Country Joe and the Fish are. We, We know who Sly and the Family Stone were because this is our period. We know, you know, Arlo Guthrie because, hey, every Thanksgiving, Alice's Restaurant, right? Richie Havens, who even knows who he is? Canned Heat. I mean, who the heck is John Sebastian, right? So there's one of the biggest cultural musical events of all time. And other than Hendrix, they are not relevant musically. So what we're seeing is the kind of musician that has had the staying power, which is two things. It's the quality of the music. Well, three things. Three. (laughs) The quality of the music, the amount of touring they did, and the amount of radio airplay they get. The classic lock radio stations are keeping these people alive. Now, in our discussion recently, we were speculating, what if the Rolling Stones sold their publishing right, which is Keith and Mick. Uh, I did a quick look on Wikipedia, and I couldn't find any credits for Charlie Watts. Or Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. I didn't go far enough back to see if Brian Jones had any credits, but back then they were all covers anyway. So yeah. if Keith and Mick sold their publishing rights, that would be the last big one that I can think of.
0: Yeah, I can't think of anybody else other than them. The Beatles sold theirs years ago because yeah. they had to.
1: Yeah. Um, if you think about The Grateful Dead, it gets really complicated because you've got Jerry Garcia, who wrote with Robert Hunter, so Hunter did the lyrics. You've got Bob Weir, who wrote with John Perry Barlow, who did lyrics. Now, Hunter and Barlow are dead. Garcia's dead. Garcia's estate would sell anything. But they might not be able to assemble all of those rights in a way that they can sell them as as a block. And anyway, I don't think the Grateful Dead has enough songs that would be that popular for future royalties. You'll hear trucking in pretty much every movie about the 70s. You might hear Casey Jones, but not a lot more. But the Rolling Stones, I think, is the last big one that I kind of wonder, you know, do they want to sell it? One of the reasons they sell these rights is to pay capital gains tax, which are generally lower. to to plan for their estates, for their children, et cetera, they can probably hedge this in a lot of ways to not pay too much taxes on it. So when you are getting near the end of your career, and I would say that you you look at these guys who've sold, they're generally pretty healthy in spite of everything. Springsteen looks like he's 50. Mick, he's got a lot of wrinkles and he looks like he's 60, but he's still energetic. Keith Richards still looks like he's 120, but he's going to live forever. So these aren't people who are sick, right? It's not like, you know, Neil Young, who doesn't look like he's really healthy. It's
0: not necessarily the end of their career. Right,
1: exactly. Well, it it could be. Sure. Any of them could stop anytime they want because they're wealthy sure. enough. But I think they all love music too much to to want to do that. But they won't be stopped for physical reasons. So on the one hand, you've got The record companies taking back control from technology. You've also got the record companies planning to keep serenading us with this music over and over as often as possible until it becomes like listening to Frank Sinatra. When you hear a commercial for whatever with a Bruce Springsteen song, it's going to remind you of the values of Bruce Springsteen.
0: So ultimately, there will be a finite number of music songs that we hear i mean if you, if you extrapolate that it's like there's going to be a finite number it's like it's like a playlist at a radio station only these songs and not other ones we don't we only want to have music that will attract people we don't want to have anything else i mean ultimately that's what you're talking about you're saying if, if you're going to use a piece of music in a, in a commercial it's because the music is attractive it's
1: familiar but it, yeah, it, it's familiar. The, the same way a smell is familiar, a certain smell makes you think of a certain thing, and music does the same thing. What, what's interesting, though, is that music has become so fragmented that there are no artists today who could do that. There's no hip-hop artist with enough consistent, familiar music that could make that kind of sale. It, it's Back in the day, in the 70s, you, you had what, four radio stations in New York City, one of them played album rock, one of them played Hits, etc. Your your listening was through a funnel. You didn't have a lot of choices. So everyone heard all that stuff. Now everyone hears so many different things that you can't do it. Plus, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Grammy Awards and how the writing credits for some songs have like fifty different people. Well this is this is short sighted by these musicians to not claim all the publishing rights for themselves, even buying out whoever's contributing to songs, because they'll never be able to sell the publishing rights.
0: I often wondered if they, they use the featuring thing for very short-sighted reasons to, to, to say, look, this celebrity is on my track. Listen to it now. But five years, 10 years down the road, one of, one or both of you may not even be a viable... Uh, memory. So, you know, what's the point of doing that? They're not running it like a business. I, one of the things about hip-hop bands and groups and artists is that they pride themselves on their business acumen. And sometimes I really got to wonder about
1: that. Well, it's very short-term. It is. Yeah. It's not thinking... It's not looking at the current... It's not looking where the puck is going. It's looking where the puck is right now. And some of them are doing very well because of that, because between streaming and merch and whatever. They're not doing concerts right now. But when you think about it, they are they are exploiting the market well. But as you say, the featurey thing, to me, I'm just looking through the top songs on the iTunes store in the US, and I don't know any of the featured people. I don't know many of the artists either, to be honest, because this is not a genre I listen to. But you, you won't... it it what there were duets back in the day. Remember Johnny Cash would do duets with different people, Cash and Dylan. So if you like Johnny Cash, maybe you buy the Dylan album, right? And if you like so and so, and and in our day we looked at these rock family trees. So such and such musician who went from this band to the other, and that could be an attraction. It's all it's all business. That's the thing. It's all business. We have to understand that this is. You get into music because you like it. You get into music, you make a band in a garage, but eventually if you want to stay in it, it is business. And I think for a lot of bands in the seventies, they were able to get through this because they were selling enough and they didn't pay attention to a lot of the business. And a lot of them went bankrupt and you know, who knows what happened to a lot of them died. But I think more and more musicians are aware of the business aspect at the same time as the music aspect. If anything, the music creation is easier than it was back then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You You just need a laptop, right? You can sample everything. So you don't have that period of practicing for a year and writing songs, and now you just bring in a bunch of, you know, guns for hire to write some beats and some hooks, and you loop them together, and you've got music. So it's more of a... It's more of an assembly of items rather than a creative process. You know,
0: we're getting a little away from it, but I've always wondered why they did that. Why can't you do it all yourself? Why do you need other production people? And I, because I think
1: they're not musicians. Yeah,
0: that's got to be what it is. They're
1: not good enough musicians. When you think about it, most rap vocalists aren't necessarily musicians. They're They may be poets, they may be speakers or singers, but you don't see them playing guitars, keyboard, or anything else. So I think it's a different type of musician. Uh, You know, Taylor Swift is different. She can play things, and, and Lady Gaga, she can play things. But in actual rap, and again, this is my ignorance of the genre, so I might be totally wrong, but most of them are speakers slash singers rather than anything else. So they're not going to sit down like, you know, you see those pictures of Dylan in 65 sitting at the piano and coming up with songs or the Beatles Get Back documentary. That's not how it works anymore. So they need someone to do all that for them. In fact, most of them don't write their own words either. A lot of them have people come in and give them the songs. But in the history of popular music, there have always been great singers who didn't write anything. Linda Ronstadt, I don't think she wrote any songs. She just wrote what other, she just sang what other people wrote as did Frank Sinatra. So I think what's interesting is what will the next step be? Music will not be any less fragmented. So we're we're in a we're in a period where it's more a faucet than anything else. You can't you can't have the critical mass of everyone being familiar with the same music anymore. You have a few artists that stand out. You know, Taylor Swift, I think, is an example. Lady Gaga, Billie Eilish that are standing out. But they're still not crossing the boundaries of genres enough to become marketable. Because remember, if you're putting a song for a commercial, you're assuming it's people who are seeing a commercial right? On TV. And that's not young people. They don't watch TV. So you're targeting an older demographic anyway, and you want music that they're either familiar with or that is banal enough that they don't notice, you know, the dingly dink background music. That's
0: that's the thing that bugs me about ACDC, banal enough. It's like, it's next I'll be, you know, I've heard Ramon songs on commercials and it, by definition, the music in a commercial is banal. I mean. It's not supposed to be. It
1: elicits memories. By by banal, I mean the kind of music that's just like royalty free, almost. That's just that's just a a music bed, as we would say in the audio business. You know, like like the soundtrack, like the opening jingle for this podcast that you wrote in, I don't know, a half hour. It's just there to be musical.
0: Well, I I I wonder how much does the music industry now feel like they're better. in control than maybe they were in the 90s? Do they think that they're recouping anything or is it still adapting?
1: Well, the the overall music industry figure, when you look at all the money that that comes in from sales, licensing, et cetera, is increasing substantially. And it was flat for a long time, probably even dropped in the 90s and the early 2000s. So it is increasing and it's increasing because of streaming. And the goal is, of course, to get everyone to pay for streaming the problem is that there is a physical limit to this. There, there is, you know, there's six billion, seven billion people on the planet. Maybe half of those are going to want to pay for streaming music because some of them are in countries where, I don't know, they are not interested in music. Their music isn't representative, or it's not. There's there could
0: easily be radio stations. I'm assuming that people don't listen to radio as much in this country as they do in other countries. Radio has a uh, has a bigger Job to perform. Like in the UK, where you are, radio is huge. Over here, not so much. It's more of a streaming thing.
1: Yeah, but that's partly because in most countries outside of the US, radio is national and not local. I mean, we have local radio stations, but we also have national stations. So anywhere you go, you can hear them. The US is a strange combination of like you have a radio network that may own 100 stations, but it's not really the same programming because of the size of the country, because of the FCC rules on ownership and all that. So it, it is a different kind of thing. But more and more people are listening to podcasts, and the more people listen to podcasts, the less they listen to music. And that's also interesting to see where that's going to go, as the music industry has nothing to do with podcasts. That's, it, it's If anything, it's the radio industry that went into podcasts in, a, in an oblique manner. A lot of people dropped out of radio to make some of these high-end podcasts. And so that fragments things a lot when you know listening time is, is finite.
0: All right, we've rolled past 30 and we'll get to our next tracks. But the idea that podcasts are the crutch interregnum for radio might be a, an interesting topic, but we'd have to research it. Anyway, let's do our next tracks. We have no ads, we have no sponsors, and that's because that's just clutter. We don't need that stuff to keep you entertained and keep you listening. And if we have kept you entertained and listening, we hope that you'll help us out with uh, a little contribution by becoming a Patreon patron of the show. You can sign up at patreon.com slash the next track. Kirk, what's your next track?
1: I haven't been listening to a lot of music lately, but one thing I have been listening to often is Brian Eno's 1975 album, Discreet Music, but only the first side. Discreet Music was Eno's first generative album where he did this thing with tape loops and there's these short phrases that come in and overlap and weave together. And the title track is 30 minutes long, it's one side and then uh, the B side is like variations of Paco Bell's canon slowed down, which I don't find very interesting. But I really like discrete music. It's just got these simple two, three, four note phrases that are that are happy, that are mellow, and I find this such a wonderful piece of music to listen to in the background. If I'm in bed reading at night or something, or if I'm just sitting working and not paying too much attention. And, you know, I've talked about a lot of ambient music over the years, I talked about Robert Fripp's Music for Quiet Moments set a few episodes ago, but there's something about discrete music, this 45-year-old record, that has stuck with me over time. And it's just, it's reassuring, it's comfortable. So discrete music, 1975, side one or track one is the most interesting part. Doug, what about you?
0: I just received this CD, so I will literally be listening to this next. I haven't even opened yet. It has, of course, arrived with a crack in the case, but that's just the way, that's the way life is for us CD collectors nowadays, isn't it, friends? Anyway, I'm going to be listening to Donald Fagan's The Nightfly. It's his first solo album after leaving, after breaking up Steely Dan. Um, I remember when this album came out in 1982, in the fall of 1982, I had just started my first full-time daylight gig in radio and this was one of the albums that we played and people were looking forward to it coming out not just because it was donald fagan songs steely dan although it ultimately did sound like a steely dan album but also because this was one of the rare records at the time that was a ddd record it was recorded digitally mixed digitally and mastered digitally up until then most albums were recorded probably on analog equipment, mixed maybe on digital equipment, and maybe mastered on digital equipment. Um, so it was very unusual to get a triple D, uh, and everyone was looking forward to this record because, of course, if it's uh, you know if it's the same people who produced Steely Dan, which is what it was. Um, then this Donald Fagan album should sound pretty good. And of course, it didn't disappoint. It sounds quite good. It had a couple of hits on the, on the record. I'm really looking forward to it. Brings back a lot of memories. I haven't listened to it in a long time. And it's just one of those things that I, I think I'm really going to enjoy. If not for the songs, just for the, the great sound. Donald Fagan, The Nightfly is my next track. This was episode number 227 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can hear an expanded version of this episode streamed for a full hour with music on Uncertain FM, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. That's uncertain.fm, Sunday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining. It is your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash The Next Track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.